Welcome to episode 211 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Thursday, 18th of April, 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and in the next few shows, I'm going to be interviewing bike makers and thinkers from America and Israel. But today is an all England affair. In fact, it's Yorkshire themed. I paid a visit to two young manufacturing companies situated not far apart from each other on the outskirts of Leeds. In the second half of today's show, I'll introduce you to former pro roadie Tom Barris, who created a company called Spatswear to make the bee's knees of overshoes. Many professionals now won't go out in the rain without them. But first, before Christmas, I met with Nathan Hughes, founder of Restrap. In the Forbes.com article I've just written on this 80-year-old company, the headline is... Millennial creates one million pound bike luggage maker by watching how to do it on YouTube. I love that angle. Want to learn to make something and sell shed loads of them? Fire up the how-to videos. So here's Nathan. So I cycled across the, the canal from the station um, and I've arrived in, um, well, it's, it's Carlton Estate. Isn't it, Nathan? So, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of cute. But anyway, it's a it's a former um, canal side, um, modern industrial estate now, but it used to be a, some form of manufacturing unit. So Nathan before was telling me uh, that it was munitions were here. There's been uh, Arga cooker type things being made here. It's a very industrial place, and it's still industrial now. Even though I'm sure a lot of the other businesses around on this this estate are not doing exactly what Nathan is doing. But Nathan, you are making bike bags um, and other bike things, including, I'm sure you don't mind mentioning that, you, you mentioned you're going to be doing a, a new line of pannier bags. Yeah, that's too. correct. So, so Restrap, just, just tell us, you're, you're big now, but you didn't start big, obviously. Nobody starts no, big, so but you started with a very small product. So tell us about that product. Yeah, so originally it started with a pedal strap. So the, the whole concept behind it was we used to make pedal straps out of recycled car seat belt, hence the name Restrap. It was originally uh, recycled strapping. So, um, and yeah, that was almost ten years ago. So we used to go around scrapyards, cut out seat belts from various cars, have to wash them, usually in my mum's washing machine, and uh, yeah, stitch them in a in a back bedroom somewhere on a on an Aldi bought sewing machine of all things. And then where were you flogging them? Where were you where were you selling these things? So a lot of it was friends. Uh, we got quite lucky. There was like a, a big surge in like sort of the fixed gear community 
like about 10 years ago. So we were selling to a lot of London-based shops, Tokyo Fixed, 14 Bike Co., these kind of little indie independent shops. So yeah, it was quite a small scale operation then. And how did you morph into doing bags? Yeah, I think it was just a natural progression really. You've got sewing machines and fabrics and bits of webbing and you know, you start experimenting with other small bits and it sort of evolves from there and we sort of got into luggage and backpacks and other strapping products. Yeah. And how many people, so we've had a, a wander around um, your facility here and we'll, yeah. we will uh, go for another tour around in a minute and, and, yeah. and, and see exactly what's happening here including laser cutting and yeah. all sorts of clever things that are, yeah. are, are either going on or, or going to be going on in this place. But how many people have you got working here for you? Uh, at the moment there's 16 uh, from the first week of January there'll be 21 so we seem to be growing at some rate at the moment and we're sort of juggling it but yeah it's um, yeah about 16 at the moment. And you were saying before that you, the last, it's the last couple of years where the growth has just doubled each year. Yeah I think especially since we got into the sort of the, the bike luggage you know the bike packing market the backpacks um, that's allowed us to grow a lot. We've also you know, taken on some contract side of things as well because we've, we've started to invest in this very high-tech machinery that can do other jobs. So we try to keep it running for as long as it can possibly run. So most companies are, are buying it from China uh, or yeah. Asia. Yeah. Uh, clearly you are making almost everything here. That, yeah. that's, that's a benefit in today's economic landscape? Yeah, I think you know it gives you control over quality, which is which is the key. Um, also, change you know market changes quickly, and we can change products around that. We can do updates very quickly. We're not holding masses of levels of stock all the time. We're not having to order five thousand bags that sit on the shelf and don't sell well. So we can change bits like that and do limited edition runs. So yeah, it's it's just about having control over it, and and that's what we sort of wanted. We knew if we wanted to hit the quality. That we wanted to get to the only way to do it was to do it ourselves and brexit yeah so it's it's a strange one because obviously you know there's definitely been mixed emotions in here about the way it's gone and what it's done from a business perspective obviously we've been quite lucky where because we're producing in the uk and a lot of our fabrics and stuff are uk based that we haven't been hit too badly with currency changes and if anything because of the currency change, we're exporting a lot more because we're a lot cheaper than the competitors. So where are you exporting to? Where, who, where have you got distribution? Uh, so we've got about 15 distributors on at the moment. So the majority of Europe, as you imagine, Japan, South Korea, China, uh, just signed Australia, America, um, and probably a few more that I've forgotten about. <laughs> And is it the, the growth of bike packing that has been the accelerant for you? Is that, 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 that niche of a niche, that, that kind of rebranding of what was used to call cycle touring, yeah, and yeah. now it's called bike packing all of a sudden? I think, yeah, I think that's definitely been a big help. I think there's been a big mind shift in how to use a bike more. I think there's a lot more people considering it for holidays or just going away for a weekend or even just riding to work, you know, so and people need luggage that goes on bikes. So I think bikepacking is a big part of it, but I think also the general mindset 
of people using bikes is, is starting to change. So bikes becoming practical. Yeah, and I think that's where we see it going. You know, we get a lot of companies that are very elite and, you know, their luggage or their bikes or whatever are like, we're the lightest, we're the fastest. Um, and we're not really about that. We're about being durable, getting your money's worth out of the product, uh, making sure it lasts and, and just convincing people to get out on a bike and that you can use it for a day-to-day -day, uh, thing rather than just on a weekend ride. How many SKUs you got going here? Um, including colorways and, and I, there's about 48, 50 products now. So somewhere around the 50 mark. Um, but yeah, we've got probably another seven or eight products due for launch in about March time as well. So we, we seem to be adding about 20, 25% to the range every year so it seems that when we develop one thing we we get ideas about 10 other things and then it just sort of snowballs a bit from there and when you're distributing overseas mm. uh, is the fact that you're british is that is that like a sales in some tool? places or they not, it doesn't matter where you're from it's just like it's a cool product yeah i think some countries like japan and stuff like it's really well respected that stuff made in Britain. I think with America, it makes it a little bit more difficult because Americans quite like made in America, so. Oh, certain, certain political leaders actually say they've got to buy from America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, it depends in the area. I think um, Britain's still well respected in manufacture uh, across the world. So it's, it's hard to say. Some countries respect it more than others. And what's, what's your leading, what's your, your best-selling product? Uh, so, the funny, if it was on numbers, it'd be our belt, which is that you wouldn't think at all, but we sell thousands of belts, which is, yeah, strange, but then... A belt that does... It's just a magnetic belt that we do that's like a elasticated belt that's just comfortable for cycling, but it just seems to be, it's a low price point, people like it, so they buy more of it. Um, the After that, I would say it's probably... Um, uh, after that, I'd say it's probably um, the saddle bag, frame bag, bar bag, that sort of setup. I'd say they're fairly even on sales, those products. You find if someone gets one, they generally get the other two at a later date because people like to have matching kit across their bike. So you're then going into what I would consider more traditional products, which are the pannier bags. Yeah, so, you know, we understand that obviously bikepacking, it's it's quite low capacity. If you're going to do more than, I'd say, two, three weeks touring, you, you probably need a bit of extra capacity. And we found that, you know, we've got friends and I've got someone who actually used to be a machinist here and she's cycling around the world at the moment. So they needed panniers. So we wanted to cater for that sort of more traditional kind of tour and someone who wants to do longer haul or someone who just likes panniers for commuting to work. So the key, the key facts of it was that we wanted to be at a price point that we could compete. So it's taken us two years to bring them out because we've had to scale so that we can actually produce to get the costing at the right cost. And then we had to wait for some things like the tape ceiling and stuff like that so we could bring out a, a totally waterproof version, which we thought was really important. That you are making here? Yes, yeah, 100% made here. And that you had to get new equipment in to... Yeah. It's not stitching anymore, it's now taping, so... Yeah, so, well, it's stitching, taping, lasering, 
CNC cutting. So yeah, there's a there's a a lot of very expensive machines that have to come together to make a product and make it at a price point. So the people that I can see through the window yeah. uh, there, I would say mostly the women. Yeah. Um, there's the odd guy on the machine there. Mm. Uh, is there a skill set in this area that you're tapping into, like in previous, where, where are these people coming from or can you just train them up on the, the machine? It's a mixture. You'll find the older generation are usually uh, been in the industry before from when it was around. Uh, the younger people we, we do a lot more training with, um, but it's it's quite, it looks after itself in a way because the people who have the skills in there train the people who don't have the skills and they, they all share information quite a bit. So it is always a difficult one because it's a bit of a, a dying trade in a way. And even though it's a skilled job, sewing seen as unskilled a lot of the time, you know, when you can buy a t-shirt for £1.50, people don't see the the value in obviously the machine work so it's not something people get into a lot but the thing that we do different here is it's not you're not on a production line you're not doing the same thing day in day out everyone has their contribution towards the product I'd say over half our staff cycle so you know a lot of them ride the product as well as make it so there's there's always little tips and contributions and better ways to make it which is good for us. So I can vouch for that because when I came in, I was instantly said, right, I'll just put your bike there. Because it yeah. was like there was bike racks right in the, the, the front of your building. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's perfectly normal to cycle to work here. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's one thing, like I never have anyone lock the bike outside. So I think that's because I, I don't want to lock my bike outside. So <laughs> I need to bring mine in. So tell us, if you, if you don't mind, your kind of, your turnover when you started to compared to how it's gone through the years. Um, so, first year, I turned over £9,000 in the entire year and I didn't have another job at the time, so it was uh, quite tight with their margins and things. So, um, And then we, we pretty much doubled year on year most years, or been close to. Um, so, for instance, this, this year we're looking at probably just over 700,000, but next year we'll be over the million pound mark, which is which is our aim. Um, the one thing we've been careful of is try not to let it get out of control and grow too much. You know, we're, we're trying to make a sustainable business rather than a very profitable business. So that's why we're reinvesting in machinery and stuff like that, is we're, we're hoping we're around for the long term rather than selling to an investment company for millions and, and sending everything to China. Well, just the fact your manufacturing is unusual, you know, yeah. full stop. So mm. a lot of the, the companies in the UK that make things don't make things. You know, they're, they're, they're buying them in and rebadging them and stuff and, or boxing them. And yeah. So you're not, you're not a distribution business, you're a, a, a genuine bony Friday manufacturing business. Yeah, which is unusual as well because a lot of the time you'll, you'll either be a manufacturer or you'll be a brand that's B2C. Um, where we're sort of we're selling B2C but then also manufacturing developing and trying to look after machines and figure out tooling and you know all the stuff that you usually pay someone else to do in a different factory so yeah it's a, it's a difficult balance but it just comes back to that having control and you know you get to work around good people and you get to make stuff which is really what we enjoy doing. So who's designing your goods? Uh, the majority of it was me until probably this last year, um, which I would still say it's over 50% myself, but 
Danning stuff who's on the cutting machine, you'll meet. Um, he's he's start getting involved with some of the bag design. We've actually got someone starting in the new year who just doing tooling design. So they won't actually do anything with the products. It will be just designing to make the machinery more efficient so we can do the products we want to do. So that's changing and that's just due to my time is I don't have any time. So what's your background when you were doing that first mm. product? What were you doing? Uh, you I you was you weren't, you weren't doing a job, but what were you actually? I was studying electrical engineering at college, so I was seventeen. So it was uh, yeah, many years ago. But yeah, so I hadn't really, you know, I wouldn't say I had experience in anything. I just um, enjoyed making things, and that was really it. So a lot of it has been, you know, I suppose I'm the generation where I've learnt most of my job from YouTube and, and Google. Mm. So you want something done, you're just going, oh, it must be on YouTube, somebody can tell me how to sew that bag or how to... Yeah, I think that's the great thing now, you have got technology at your fingertips, you know, you can, if you really want to learn something, you, you can learn it, you don't have to necessarily go to university to do something that's practical, obviously if you're a doctor or something, you know, you have to, but I mean, if you know you want to build a chair, then you can go online and figure it out and buy the tools and, you know, I think that's what people don't realise, if someone else has done it, then you're capable of doing it. And how are people finding out about your products and, and you as a company? Uh, mixture, like, you know, there's obviously some advertising and things we do, but a lot of stuff we drive through is social media, you know, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of thing. We've got quite a big newsletter. We always convince people to sign up to the newsletter. You know, we don't try to bombard people with, here's a sale, here's a discount. It is actually, we try to put some interesting stories together about how stuff's made and here's a bit of a machinery and here's the people who are making it so which you know stuff that people are interested in reading rather than just buy a bag <laughs> buy another bag so um but apart from that i think a lot of it is we've, we've really concentrated on getting a good distribution network so we're in quite a few shops now so people see it on the high street or see it in their local shop and and that really helps push traffic and people get in contact that way have you done a Kickstarter? Have you thought about doing a Kickstarter or we, a certain niche product? Yeah, well, we did. The belt was actually a that kickst- was a Kickstarter. That was a Kickstarter. Oh. Yeah, so that was um, yeah quite a successful Kickstarter, and you know it was bigger than what we thought, and that was in the early days when that, there was two of us here. So um, you know that allowed us to buy a couple of bits of machinery and get another person at the time. So yeah, we have done it. I think you know we wouldn't rule it out for doing it again. Um, we're just wary of doing it for the right product. We have some things next year coming up which involves some injection welding and stuff that we think might be something that we need to get some sort of pre-order system towards just so we can get that tooling in place. But yeah, it's it, we do have some experience in it, but I always think that um, you can overdo it sometimes. With so not the, every product line, it's gonna be just a certain kind of product. Yeah. So is it fair to say that you did get the acceleration for the business from that that Kickstarter product. Yeah, that definitely, you know, helped towards it. It's great because you get basically a lump sum of money of pre-sales, you know, before you've produced. So you haven't spent technically anything. Don't get me wrong, the campaigns, like the way the platforms are changing now, you have to have almost a marketing company and a PR company and, you know, you, people see a big sum and there's actually probably 20, 30% of it probably goes towards 
advertising and PR and all the rest of it. And the cut that Kickstarter takes. And the cut that Kickstarter takes, yeah. And then, you know, there's always things, lost product and all this that you've got to consider. And if you have a really successful one, I think it must be a nightmare. You've got 10,000 products going out within the same week and it's, yeah, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So you have to be really organized and prepared. And I think some companies do it as almost a marketing thing to get sales in where, you know, I sort of think, well, I'd like to think that we try to do it when we need it rather than taking advantage of it and going, every product we, we bring out is like, oh, we'll crowdfund it. And it's like, no, some of it we fund ourselves. It's only when we come to having to buy a bit of machinery or tooling that we, we look at anything like that. Can you expand here? Um, we've actually only moved here eight weeks ago and we were in half the size of this eight weeks ago. And we, we were expecting it to last a little bit longer with space, to be honest. Um, and it's already looking quite full. So we're sort of, we're, we'll be here for a little while. I don't know how long, because I, I don't know what's happening next week most of the time. It's, it's going that quick. So, But I think there's a, there's a couple of other units around here that we might have to move some departments in, because we have the different departments with the cutting and the sewing and packing. So. So where were you eight weeks ago then? Uh, only a mile and a half away from here. So we were in like a sort of shared complex. So and slowly over the years that we took another building and another building and another building. And then we were like, no, we need to move somewhere where we're all in one. Um, and then, yeah, we moved here thinking it's double the space. It'll last us a bit, but like anything, you get the space, you seem to fill it with stuff. So that's what's happened. And are you from Leeds or did you come to the uni here? Are you like college here or what? Uh, I'm from Bradford, which is mm. city next door, but not a lot going on <laughs> over there. So I moved here um, had a lot of friends who rode and cycled over here. So been in Leeds about eight years now. So, but yeah, pretty similar, 20 mile away. So you started it in Bradford then? Yeah, yeah. And then moved the business to? Yeah, to, to Leeds. Leeds, yeah. Mm. And what kind of cycling were you doing back then? Originally started with BMX, which was uh, one sort of thing when I was a kid. But then, obviously, growing up, my ankles and my knees and everything else uh, stopped working as well. So, um, and then I was I had some fixed gear bikes for a while. Uh, now I've got like cross bikes, gravel bikes, mountain bikes. Um, I think I've got seven bikes on the go at the moment, and you know. My girlfriend I live with, she's got five bikes, so I've you know, got 12 bikes in it all the time. So it's a real range, it just depends on what I'm feeling like and a lot of the time what the weather's like to what bike you pick. So. And are you riding to work? Yeah, majority of days. So it's only, I would say, I drive about once a week to work because I've got to collect stuff from places. But yeah, I'm only three miles away, so it's quite an easy commute for me. Because Leeds is not the most bike-friendly place. No, it, like the city centre, it's just, if you're not from Leeds, it's difficult to get around in a car because it's all one-way streets. So I'd say riding a bike in the city is easier because you're not going around the one-way system 20 times. Um, there is a lot of infrastructure going in place now. Like I know with because we had to start the Tour de France and there's a Tour de Yorkshire now, and you know the councils are definitely trying to invest in cycling more but it's it's like most places is the people who are designing these these infrastructures don't don't ride bikes so there's usually quite a lot of bad planning behind it so it, we'll see where it goes i think there is 
something about um, they're trying to stop cars going into the city centre on a Sunday, so then you have to use public transport and bikes, which you know will really change the way people ride around the city centre. But time will tell. Now, when I interview other people mm. in the bike space, mm. um, either on or off record, and certainly off mm. record, mm. Uh, they will tell me how dire it is out there at mm. the moment. The market is in not just flat, but it's, it's, it's in massive freefall. Mm. And as with your comment about Brexit, you know, you're going the other way. Yeah. You're kind of, I'm interviewing you here, and you're saying, no, no, we're doing really well, actually. So how come you're doing really well? It's a very hard question, I don't yeah. need to answer, but you're doing well and the rest of the market. So it's against a, a declining market. How come you're, you're bucking that trend? Well, I think you know, there are things like currency and stuff that come into play. I think it comes down to though that you know, we are developing new stuff. We're not just bringing out another color and saying it's the 2019 model. You know, we are trying to put innovative there. Uh, parts into the product um, and it comes down to you know we have the control over the manufacturing we can respond to the market a lot quicker you know if you've got a all of a sudden I don't know unicycles are in or something you've got to go to China it's probably six to eight months before at the earliest before you can get that to market you know where with us we we can turn around products we well we did a, a product uh, that we turned around in a day that we we did as a bit of a project to see if we could do it. So we all got together. It was the saddle pack that we do. So it's 100% uh, waterproof saddle pack. Um, did the designs up, we got it cut, we prototyped it. Uh, we sent some people out and we had some concepts about little changes and then we launched it to the market in 24 hours. So just to prove that, you know, we can be really responsive to a market. if. If we have to be, and it's actually one a really good selling product. I think it's for the size, and because it's waterproof on the market, we're actually the cheapest in the UK at the moment, and it's made here. So it's you know it proves you can do it. It's just uh, yeah, it just takes a, a little bit of planning. But yeah, going back to the original question, I, I think that's all it is: is people just can't be as responsive, and they just don't have the control over it. So it's difficult. And also with the bike market, there's a there's a bit of it where I think for the last 10 years I've been in it, everyone's said that it's on the down and, you know, I think that's awesome. There's a bit of human nature in there as well. Well, where do you see it going then? If, if, that, if you've been there for 10 years and you've, people have been saying it's on the down and you haven't experienced that. Yeah. You just see, can you see yourself doubling every, every year? Uh, possibly. I wouldn't like to say yes, but... Um, I think we're very good at adapting to the market and taking on feedback and, and changing things, which I think is the way that you have to be with this day and age where it does change quickly. And I think that's probably a, a big issue with it is a lot of, especially the bigger brands who are you know owned by investment firms and stuff like that, they just don't, they're not really in touch with the market and they're not as responsive enough to it to, to change what they're doing. and. Also, a lot of them, you know, their systems have been in place for so many years. They can't, they can't change what they're doing. So, you know, that's also the, the difficult one. And I think the end customer is now a bit more wary about buying from, you know, the Amazons of the world and stuff. And they are looking for niche and uh, nicer products. So most of your 
um, expansion yeah. has been self-funded. So you haven't had to bring in you know, angel investors or... Uh, no, so we have a couple of years after the business, the guy who's the sales director, he, he bought some shares in the business, but it was actually at the time very small sum of money. It was just mainly for having a helping hand in the sales side of the business. Um, and then apart from that, we've been self-funded, you know, we're lucky where, well, I suppose that's why it's taken us 10 years to get to where we are, is, you know, we've not been taking big loans to buy the machines, we've been trying to develop and create revenue to then purchase the machine and then continue that so you're way. So leasing these laser cutters and stuff, you're actually buying these things? Yeah, so, yeah, every, every machine in here, Restrap owns outright, so, and it's, it's, the one thing we want to do, it gives us a bit more security towards the staff, which is our key thing, is you know, we have a lot of people here rely on their income from us, so that, that's number one, the machinery's number two, because without them, the machine doesn't run. So you're not looking for any angel investments in the future, that's not gonna, it's, it's just against your... It's, it, it's, it's, not, really. it's not against anything, and you know, never say never, but it's just that we've never, thought there was the right opportunity you know if it was something we had a big idea and we needed to fund it then we, we would look at those revenues but we just we've always felt like we've been on the edge of like we could do with some funding but we could just wait a little bit longer and, and do it ourselves so you know if, if something comes up I wouldn't say no but um, yeah it's just if something comes up. Thanks to Nathan Hughes there. You can find his product on restrap.co.uk. Before we travel the few miles to Spatsware, however, here's David with a short intermission. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody, it's David. And I am here, well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N-U-S-A.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. Jensenusa.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between, components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. Now here's Tom, son of Sid Barris, the former professional rider who, for 18 years, dominated the English racing scene in the 1970s and 1980s. Clearly, you've got a famous dad. 
I do. The the the, uh, the name, you know, kind of like is known to cyclists, obviously. Yeah. Um, but forget Sid. You. Yep. So <laughs> tell me your Palmares. What? What? Tell me about your racing career. My cycling, right? Okay. Uh, I was quite a successful junior. Um, and then I always wanted to be a pro bike rider, obviously following my dad's footsteps that, you know, that's something that I was born into. It's something that I always wanted to do. Um, at that point, sort of 96, 97 to make a living as a cyclist in the UK was difficult because, um, road cycling was at a little bit of a low ebb. So I made the decision to go to Loughborough university to do a degree in industrial design and technology. Um, so went and got myself an education and then as soon as I came out of university I graduated with a decent degree as soon as I came out of university I went straight over to Belgium to pursue my dream of trying to become a pro cyclist so I hooked up with an ex-professional rider ex-national champion called Tim Harris he uh, put me forward to a team uh, was predominantly Australian but Belgian run which was called Team Down Under and I ended up riding for the same managerial team for six years. And that evolved through Team Down, Down Under. And it was then cyclingnews.com. And then finally DFL, which was a logistics company. Mm-hmm. Um, I did rode two stagiaires, which are basically trial runs to be professional rider uh, with a Linda McCartney pro cycling team and then Palman's Colstrop. Um I gave it everything to become a pro rider, uh, came out of Belgium in 2006 uh, because I basically couldn't make a decent living. Um, so I came back to, in 2007, I decided to come back to the UK and I raced in the UK quite successfully. Um, I rode for various teams in the UK, uh, including uh, uh, Plowman Craven, um, Rally, and then my last team was NFTO which was 2015. Um, I had quite a successful time racing in the UK. I think I won over 100 bike races or so. Um, And then at 37 years of age in 2015, I was offered the manager's role in the NFTO pro cycling team, which was Mm. huge and kind of a a natural way to sort of bow out of the sport. So then 2016, I became the manager of NFTO Pro Cycling, which was fantastic. Uh, We were sponsored by Aberdeen Asset Management. Um, I managed riders such as Johnny McAvoy, um, Ian Bibby, and we were were hugely successful. Um, Yeah, so that kind of, in a nutshell, was was all, that's my cycling career done. So I kind of, it was a difficult time to make it as a pro. Mm. Um, I've absolutely no regrets. I loved every minute of it, but it kind of ended on a high with NFTO, and then going into a managerial position was fantastic. And what are you doing now? Now, I am the founder member of Spatswear Limited, um, which is an extreme weather cycling clothing um, company. I coach a number of riders i have a trainingpro.co.uk which is a cycling coaching company mm-hmm. uh, i coach the likes of tom pidcock who's an up-and-coming star mm-hmm. um i also do a little bit of web design but basically all my experience that i've just mentioned over the last sort of 20 years the web design the industrial design the cycling 
all kind of culminates with spatware. Mm. Mm. So um, I can tell you the story of how spatware began, if that's any any good. I would have got there at some point, but yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as I came out of cycling, uh, I, if we wind back to 2016, I was managing an FTO pro cycling team. Aberdeen Asset Management pulled out in around December 16. Mm. So I frantically tried to fill that hole uh, funding for, for NFTO. Um, it became clear in, in December 16 that wasn't going to happen. So I was left then with a pregnant wife, a house, two cars, three cats all to fund and no income. It had gone from managing this team to nothing. Mm. So I was sat with my wife thinking, right, okay, what's the next move? What am I going to do? And I had this idea um, back in 2006 when I was out training in the Yorkshire Moors. I used to I used to live in, in Keithley in the winter and I used to race out in Belgium in the summer. And at some point in 2016, probably January, February, I was out training in the Yorkshire Moors as I did every other day. And I was just finding that my training was being cut cut short because my feet were absolutely bloody freezing. Mm. And I remember the, the rainwater from my front wheel, splashing up from my front wheel onto my shins, dribbling down my cycling tights into my overshoes and just having, after an, after 30 minutes or so, just having wet, cold feet and not being able to handle it in the cold. Tom, have you not heard of these product called mud guards? <laughs> yes, and I'm a... <laughs> I was a big lover of mudguards and I had a, you not look, I come from Yorkshire. You can't go on a club ride in Yorkshire without mudguards. Mm. Fact. Mm. Right. But you know what it's like when you're riding through puddles, mud splashes around them, over the top of the mud flap, under the mm. mud flap and your feet get wet. So I had a brainwave. This is back in 2006. And I thought, right, I'm going to sort this out. And I did some drawings, got my pens out from my industrial design degree did some drawings and I went and made them out of motorbike inner tubes that I sourced from a um, tyre shop in Leeds. And they were absolutely uselessly rubbish, couldn't wear them, and I shelled this idea for, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then when Aberdeen Asset Management pulled out of NFTO, I had this sort of spark again. And I thought, right, I'm going to make them out of neoprene. Mm. So I went down to Leeds Market and I bought a big sheet of neoprene. I bought a sewing machine. I bought some staples and some glue. And I made three or four of these knee-high neoprene overshoes out um, with the zips in the back, um, Velcro up the back, elastic round. Um, and I went and tested them. And I went out in the floods, and I came back with dry feet. And I thought, this is amazing. This is, I'm onto something here. So part of me thinking, look, I need to go and get a job. And part of me thinking, well, I've had this idea. Nobody's done it. Nobody's seen it except me. And it works. And I'd pay a lot of money for these. Mm. So Wednesday in standard Wednesday, December 16, I went out on the bike, met the training group. And there was just Alistair Brownlee there at Ilkley Ironbridge where we meet because it's raining. And I've got these prototypes on my feet. Set off with Alistair. Rode through a flooding ad in Addingham. I came out of it with dry feet, and he looked at me and said, "Tom, what the bloody hell are you wearing?" Mm. And I said, "These are my new overshoes. These are my spats." 
and Alistair sort of quizzed me about it. You know, bear in mind he's, you know, at the time he's Olympic gold medalist. And he said, Tom, I love it. You know, I, I, I would love to be involved. And that's where the partnership started. So Alistair, I'm very fortunate that I met Alistair that day and he's kind of partnered me, um, you know, mentored me in a way. I mean, we speak most days about this. We sit down with the pens and the pencils and he's had a huge involvement in it. Um, so at the start, there was, two, there was two of us and we just, um, the prototypes got better and better. Alistair handed me um, one of his old Hoob wetsuits. Mm. He's sponsored by a company called Hoob. And I made about prototype 10, 11, 12 out of this new material from a wetsuit. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I went to meet with uh, Dean Jackson, who's the founder of Hoob. Um, Dean helped helped us put, put me in contact with various factories in, in China. Um, maybe have 100 prototypes back and forth with various factories until we we managed to get the mix right we needed something that was waterproof close fitting aero you didn't know you have it on you know really sleek aero silhouette that you could basically go and train in mm. not know you're wearing and, and go and do four or five hours in the rain um the third person involved is a good friend of mine and my ex-boss at NFTO, uh, and that was John Wood. John is an ex-SAS soldier. He is a summit, he summited Everest in 2016, a big friend of mine. Um, John um, was involved in the company up until about June this year. John ran with us, helped me out till we got on our feet and then said, look, love it, Tom, and he, John's got his own projects now. He needs to crack on elsewhere. Um, but John was a huge help at the start. Does he still have the bike shop? No. In Hereford, no, he doesn't. No. He doesn't. He John basically went from cycling to, to conquering Everest. <laughs> he's, John's hugely successful at everything he does. Um, he's just one of those sort of mega elite people. Mm. He's now gone from cycling into climbing and he rides his bike for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John's kind of ducked away from spats now. He helped us get going and then said, right, there you go, Tom, off you go, crack on. Mm-hmm. So then it's back to just me, myself and Alistair. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's um, Alistair's great to have on board. But then Alistair um, introduced me to the third person that's involved in spats in about June 2018. And this is a guy called Ivan Eustace, who is Irish. Um, Ivan, Ivan is one of the founders of a company called TNS, a global distribution supply company. Um, he tends to work in consumer electronic products, but he sold the company back in 2012. He's a massive passion for growing brands. He's an absolutely mega keen triathlete friend of Alistair's, and he basically lives and breathes spats now. And he's, you know, he makes up number three in spats. So how? how- and his. Sorry, sorry. How are you selling them? So, how if if he's living and breathing spats? How how exactly are you splitting the the tasks in the company, and how are you physically selling these things? We physically sell them directly on spatswear.com, but then more and more we are pushing out and selling through retailers. Mm. 
so with various ret- trusted retailers that that we sell to um, obviously we're very you know we're we're very small and new in this game um merlin were very very good to me merlin cycles last year they came on board straight away and kind of championed the brand of spatswear um they still retail for us um we've recently connected with sigma sport in london we've just done a ride with, with sigma sport last weekend um in the sorry lanes sigma have been great which is where i actually um, found you from right because, okay, from their socials well yeah, yeah i was just doodling around on twitter it came up and i thought i've never heard of that before what's that and mm. uh then obviously uh, researched it a bit more, had a look through. So how how was that ride then? The, the shop ride that you did with them. What was what was the outcome? It was, brilliant. The, was it wet for a start, whole, or was it dry? The whole thing was a pleasure. It, yeah, it was. We were praying for rain, obviously, <laughs> but we didn't want the rain to put people off. <laughs> but we met we met Sunday morning outside um, Sigma Sport in uh, in Kingston upon Thames, mm. Hampton Wick, mm-hmm. and there was about f- probably 40, 45 people. That was brilliant. Mm. But the beauty of Sigma is the staff get involved. Mm-hmm. So half the all, well, all the sales staff were out on the ride because we get out there at at eight forty, eight forty five. They they go and do a ride with us, and the staff are back in store at eleven when the shop opens. Mm. But the beauty of that was I got to meet I got to meet the sales staff face to face, and you know speak to them about the products and the sales and how it's going, and prep them on the new stuff. But they came out on the ride. We handed out some samples. We could educate some you know potential customers. But the beauty of it was half the roads were flooded. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a lane called Plough Lane. I think it's between Cobham and Ockham down mm-hmm. there. And it was like six inch deep in water. So it was brilliant. So everybody that we'd handed samples out to came home with dry feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hopefully they were straight in the shop buying. It was great. And you had people that didn't have it on who got wet feet, presumably. Yes, we did. Yeah. We did. We did. So, th- yeah, so, we had people who didn't want to give them back at the end, which is nice. So it kind of leads on to my next question, which is, you it, it helps obviously if you're going out on a ride where it's not a, a beautiful autumnal winter's day, you know, crisp, lovely. You you want rain when you go out on one of these rides. You you are praying for rain, but that we want rain. that also suggests though that uh, in August you might not sell many of these products. So how are you making your company? Uh, year round proof this is the next step and you're absolutely right bear in mind we only really started trading november 17 so we pushed and pushed and pushed we're an extreme weather cycling clothing um last year it didn't really matter because there's only me with with kind of my hands on the decks at that point it was taking me almost a season to get the new product out because we you know we went 12 months ago we had one product now we're up to four i needed that summer to get my head down design and test and and develop all the new products because obviously if i send a prototype and drawings out to to hong kong it takes them you know weeks to get the samples back so it's quite a long drawn out process Mm. so that sort of dead period in the summer of 17 actually worked a treat for me because it gave me time to get the new products out so at this point it's worked really really well going into 2019 yes we need to look for we need to either look for a, a summer products or we need to start selling where the climate is different to the uk mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we at the moment we you know I'm, it, it's moving so fast at the moment i've emailed every day about um you know distribution in new territories so new zealand australia japan 
um, all over America. Um, so the hunger's out there for pro- for the winter products all year round. It's just whether I can handle that as you know a kind of um, you know well a, a two man team really because myself and Ivan with our with our hands on the decks now, mm-hmm. and we we've just taken a, a young lad called Gavin on recently who's doing the shipping and, and the dispatch, which is a massive help. But up until a month ago, it was it was just myself and Ivan really, with with Alistair there, kind of in the sidelines, just there for mentoring and advice. Really, have you not done any crowdfunding? Because this this almost seems like the kind of project that would you know it would be a natural for Kickstarter. We haven't yet. We haven't. No, it's grown kind of organically. It's and it's grown from a very very small start. I mean, you know, we started on a couple of grand. It's something that. I would like to consider probably next year, but you know, we have to remember it. We've only really been going a year and it's been that fast moving. I've just been focusing on new product and then selling that product. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of need, I I basically need another two or three of me Mm -hmm. to be able to go out and sell us and sell the products and, and, you know, having someone there to look for crowdfunding would be a huge help. Mm -hmm. But in answer to your question, it needs doing, and I think because with a slight tech angle, and because the product's so new, I think it it, it probably would. It's work. a natural fit. It, it's the kind of place. It's 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 niche, but it's niche that's needed. It is, and this is something that Ivan's mentioned. I mean, Ivan has huge experience in this, um, you know, and it's something that he's mentioned a couple of times. It's something that I probably need to sit down with Ivan and discuss. I would imagine January this year, February this year, when sales start to slow a little mm. bit. Um, but no, you're dead right. You're dead right. Mm. And what I've found if, with my experience of doing Kickstarter, and I've done three successful Kickstarter projects, is it's unbelievably good for PR. Quite, quite apart yep. from the fact yeah, that it, 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 you know, you, you hopefully will like, you, you should definitely reach your goal because you kind of you, you make a goal that's slightly artificial anyway. Um, yeah, you, you're going to get your funding uh, as long as you've got an okay product, which you have. But it's just it, it, there's some sort of spark that interests journalists. Int- it just interests everybody mm-hmm. when you've got something on Kickstarter. It just makes everything yeah. zing compared to yeah. just trying to do it normally. It's just this amazing platform for PR, not just sales. So I would definitely recommend you to go on, on on Kickstarter at some point with you know like a an updated product that you've got. You yeah. Know? No, it make, it makes perfect sense. I think honest answer is I've been so busy that I just haven't got around mm-hmm. to it. Yep. Um, I, you know, busy just busy pushing sales all the time. But you're right, you're right. We need to step back and and look at that. So is it? Are you earning money? Are you? Are you? Is this a living for you now? Can you see that? Um, yes, yes. We are. You know, we are covering costs. We are doing well. We are. We, there's money in the bank, which there wasn't a mm-hmm. year ago. Um, I'm paying myself a small amount just to keep going. Um, and we you know we're not taking a lot because we throw everything we can back into mm-hmm. the company, but. Yes, we are earning money um, and we're growing and we'll be able to double the inventory for next year. And we, I'd like to be able to double the number of products as well. I'd like to go up to 
eight, possibly nine um, products by, let's say, August 19. That's the plan. Do you mean more iterations of the the core product, or are you talking about like new things like your the you know the the, the under gabber underwear? There will be slight tweaks to existing products because I think it's good it's good it's good to push on and constantly evolve the existing products. But I've also, I mean, I have a look. I have a, a book full of new products. I've I've spent thirty years riding a bike and drawing down ideas of the of these of, of new mm. products. Um, I'll be launching or we'll be launching. I think four new products in the next two years, which are absolutely new to market, as new as the, as the spats were, that no one's ever seen before, absolutely, totally revolutionary. And then there'll also be updated iterations of what mm. we're doing. And there'll also be some products on the market, which we I, I'm fairly sure that we can improve and, and make a lot, a lot more usable to cycle. Can you envisage a time when the, the name you've given your, your product and your company might not be what the company evolves into anymore in, in that you, you obviously spats is because of the legwear but if you if you expand yeah. out of the legwear and for instance say the base layer takes off massively you've yeah. suddenly got a, a brand yeah. name that doesn't make sense anymore have you have you are you thinking along those lines possibly uh, that i that has that has crossed my mind it has crossed my mind do you know i haven't had any negative comments about the brand or, or the or the spats overshoe name. I've had to explain it to a couple of people, but when you actually say, look, Google the word spats and see what comes up, and they say, oh, it's a mm. shoe cover from you know, Victorian mm. times, whatever, people get it straight away. I wanted to call the, the product and the brand something that stuck in your mind and something that was very mm. different mm. originally, and I'm glad that I did that. Uh, in answer to your question, we might have to evolve the name a little bit. At the moment, I don't think we need to because I'm very happy with how strong it is. I'm happy with how different mm-hmm. it is. So tell us about the base layer then, because that's when I was looking at your website and I was flicking through, I said, oh, they're very interesting. That's, 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 that serves an absolute need. But then I, I flicked around and I thought, I wonder what else you've got. It's like, ah, now that is because cycling, yeah. when, I, I've, when I started in the industry, this is 30 odd years ago, um, I came from yeah. the outdoor side. And I, I would say even yeah. now that the bike industry is way behind the outdoor side mm, in, in base layer. Yeah. And and to get cyclists to wear anything apart from cotton T-shirts has taken, you know, 30 odd years and people are still doing it. You're absolutely right. So cyclists are yeah. way, way behind. They're maybe, maybe a long way in front yeah. in in, uh, in nutrition and, and lots of other things like with the British cycling uh, aggregation of marginal gains, yeah. et cetera. Yet in in basic stuff in clothing we are still way behind. So that um, base layer spoke to me. It's like finally yeah, a brand is doing something that's 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 actually exciting. That I mean I, I, I love your spats yeah. wear the 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 spats the the leggings, but that underwear that base layer is like that really hits a spot because cyclists don't have stuff like Thank that. You. So tell so they tell me about how, where did it, that yeah. come from then? Right. The base layer, I, I've obviously done thousands of miles a year on a bike. I live in West Yorkshire. Most of my riding is up the Yorkshire Dales. Um, we typically do a ride in the, in, in, the, in the winter from Keithley called the Buckton Run, where we go up to Buckton 
um, in North Yorkshire, turn around and race back. And we go up the Wharf Valley and then Littendale. Is it Littendale? I think it's, no, it's actually Wharfdale. And it's always, there's always snow and slush and puddles on the ground and you're getting splashed and wet. And on top of that, it's a five-hour loop from Leeds. So you're out there, it's, you know, minus one, minus two on a Saturday morning in January. And I was just sick of coming home wet, not only from rain, but from perspiration, sweat. So I thought to myself, right, I need to design something that not only keeps me warm and comfortable, but also actively moves water away from my body. Now, I think I think the key for this was cyclists like to like to wear garments like the Castelli Gabba because it's aero, it's cool, it's got a good name, it's a nice piece of kit, it's a nice garment. I wear it every day. I love it. In my opinion, the difficulty with the fabric that the garment's made from is that when you do finally get wet, the garment doesn't breathe particularly mm. well. So you end up cold. So you go out and you work hard, you train hard, or you get damp from rain or sweat, and you end up cold. So I thought, right, my brief here is to be able to is is to be able to produce a garment that I can use a gabber and just one layer underneath and go out training and be comfortable. So the key really to the the base layer was the fact that I designed it to sit away from your skin. So if you look at the panels of the base layer, certain panels such as the front of the arms where the wind hits you, the chest and shoulders where the wind hits you, and then down the back where you tend to lose heat. It's all quilted fabric. Now, if you hold this fabric in your hand, if you hold the base layer, it feels quite thick and lofty like a wool jumper. But when you turn it inside out, you realise that it's not actually thick. It's actually very light and there's very little mm. material there. It's just that I've lined the inside of it with ridges of material kind of folds. These ridges of material sit against your skin but they hold 90% of the garment away from your skin so what you're doing is you're actually creating a layer of warm air right next to your skin because as we know it's not the garment that keeps you warm it's the layer of air mm -hmm. against your skin in the, in, you know, it's the same theory as a, as a string vest so when you wear it not only is it stretchy and comfortable and close fitting but it's trapping these pockets of warm air against your skin that just keep you warm and comfortable because there's very little of it touching your skin very little moisture touches your skin and the heat from your body kind of pushes the water away so you can get back i mean i did a i'm name dropping here i did a ride yesterday with adam Blythe and mark cavendish and i'm not very fit at the moment <laughs> but i rode for three hours with them got to the cafe took my gabber off and my base's base layer was dry and warm and a guy sat next to me i said look feel this and he felt it and my arms are dry and warm and this is like you know, this is drizzle and three degrees. So you're selling stuff in cafes, so then, basically. <laughs> Feel this. That's basically you yeah. saying, yeah. You, should, you need one of these. People do need it. Look, the, the, I'm very, very proud of the bases. It took me 20 factories to find the right factory that could do this mm -hmm. kind of quilting. It's probably taken 60 prototypes from various mm -hmm. factories. I settled with a really good factory in Portugal. Um, they can turn around the, the kit really fast, but the quality is fantastic. Um, but they were able to do the certain, the certain things I wanted 
featured with the with the base layer. I wanted this quilted material that lofts against your skin. I wanted the thumb loops. I wanted the long neck, and I wanted the drop back because nobody's done it before. So when you put all those features together, we've created a, an undergarment that, not, for some reason, nobody's hmm. done. So the Gabba is famous for even pros who were sponsored by another clothing company would wear a gabba yeah. underneath or would pretend that you know the gabba yeah. was actually their their clothing they would take the, the you know the castelli yeah yeah they, they would put duct tape they would cover the they name duct tape over, the, over the logo yeah so can you yeah. envisage do you know i mean you, you, you don't want to say that those particular riders you've just uh, talked about there but can you envisage a time where your base layer will be similar people will go they'll be putting duct tape over your base layer or you hope you hope that i have Look, I have, I reckon I could show you 20 names on my list of customers who ride for World Tour teams at the moment. So those overshoes, I mean, I've, those overshoes, half the World Tour's buying them, the overshoes mm. on the base layer. Because words got around, but like like you said, news travels fast on social media, but all, it travels faster <laughs> with bike riders because bike riders spend all the time together mm. on the bike. And, you know, you start having a coffee, what's that you're wearing? Oh, it's a Spats basis. Where do you get that from? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're online. And there's nothing worse than training in bad kit. And when you spend four, five, six hours a day on your bike, which I used to, you have to have good... So have, have you had any interest from teams to put their logos on so their, their riders can train in this stuff? Yeah. Are you already doing that or I is have, it just interest so far? There's, there's three World Tour teams have contacted me. Um very, very high profile teams. Um and we're discussing doing that at the moment. The difficulty is supplying product for me is not too much of a difficulty. Supplying X thousand pounds at the moment isn't feasible. Um but yes, I mean the the interest from World Tour teams and riders is huge, which is a you know, which is a real, it's a mm. really nice compliment. So you might come up against the problem, which a lot of entrepreneurs face, of interest is through the roof, but it's difficult to actually fund yeah. it. Um, yes, I mean, I think I think it goes back to your crowdfunding mm. question. Funding mm. is always going to be a challenge. Um, I mean. Ivan is absolutely fantastic. The knowledge and the contacts and experience that he's got is 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 a you know a, a huge benefit to us, and he's kind of turned us around recently. Um, we're doing we're doing nicely at the moment. I imagine we will still have to look for some more funding, possibly March April this year, and it's something that. You know, I imagine as a as a recent startup, it's something that we're going to have to continue mm-hmm. to do. Um, certainly, if if it grows at the rate that we're we're going at the moment, then yeah, we there's no doubt we're going to have to look for more funding. What kind of press reviews have you had? What what are the the mags and the the online review sites have said about your kit? Touchwood. It's all been excellent. Um, the independent did they do do a the, the independent did a, a a review a month ago and it's called I think it's called best of test and they choose ten or eleven top selling products in a particular niche and they 
uh, chose to review us as, as part of the overshoot um, write-up and they, you know we got an excellent review from them and totally active magazine again they we got a fantastic review from from totally active um velouk.net we had a review from um larry hickmott there again it was it was really nice um touchwood we haven't had any negative press and i think the reason for that is that the products that we do are so different to everything else no one really has anything mm-hmm. to compare them against but also i wouldn't bring something to market that i wasn't a hundred percent behind and that and that isn't totally you know, kind of totally mm-hmm. revolutionary um i don't want to bring out you know people are asking for gloves I, I don't want to bring out just a neoprene diving glove like other brands do because that's what people are expecting and it's the wrong fabric in my opinion because it takes purpose. a while to actually warm up the sweat inside the neoprene and by the time you're there just, you get too sweaty <laughs> i just yeah i just feel that it you know it's it would be too easy to do it's what people are expecting, but that fa- you know neoprene as a fabric, you kind of lose. You know, you, 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 it's a tactile thing. You, you have to have good tactile qualities in a glove, in, in my opinion. And to put neoprene next to your skin on your hand, for me, you can't grip the mm-hmm. handlebars well enough. You can't feel your gear levers well enough. It's you know, if you get moisture in there, the, the moisture doesn't leave. It's you know, it's not the right material. So you've got plans for other items to flesh out the range absolutely we've we've plans for i mean like i say i've i've drawings in front of me of maybe 10 new products that the market's mm-hmm. never seen before you know like my background industrial design it's what i love i love getting the pens out and drawing new products i like finding solutions to problems and you know there are a lot of problems out there why are we riding around getting wet and cold in you know it's, it's so I've new products, I've tweaks on existing products. Um, you know, I want us to be the go-to brand for extreme weather cycling clothing. That's that's the key, I think. That's the strap line. Thanks to Tom Barris there. You can find his products at Spatswear, S-P-A-T-Z-W-E-A-R.com. Thanks also for listening today and telling your friends and family all about the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesmen.com. This has been Carlton Reed with you today, and whether you've got Easter plans to go bikepacking or not, or whether you may need spatswear to keep warm and dry, get out there and ride. <laughs>